Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's podcast, we focus our attention on inherited retinal diseases. Chaired by Professor Bart Leroy of Ghent University Hospital in Belgium and Professor Isabel Audo from Sorbonne University in Paris, they'll discuss the need for genotyping of all patients with IRDs, differential access to genetic testing across the globe, and they'll explore the need for referral to super-specialist IRD centres. They're joined by Dr. Rola Ba'abad from King Khaled Eye Specialist Hospital in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and Professor Graham Black from the Manchester Royal Eye Hospital in the UK. First, though, uh, we have a couple of important updates for you Retina members, and a couple of reasons why you should join if you're not a member already. Firstly, the abstract submission portal for e-posters, free papers, and the video competition is open. We're accepting submissions only until March 1st. Uh, These are so important to any medical society, sharing and educating each other with the latest information. It's also a great way to be recognised by the Uretina community for your work. Also, for those who've been an Uretina member for more than a year, the mentoring programme is running again for 2022 to 23, providing you with the potential to be mentored by one of the leading names in Retina across Europe. Applications are open again until March 31st, so it's worth visiting the website to learn more about it there's lots of networking opportunities as well as the chance to get career advice from the leading lights in Uretina. Both abstract submissions and mentorship opportunities are open to Uretina members only. You can learn more about these and join Uretina from the website, uretina.org. All right, it's uh, time to hand over the conversation to our chairs. Please welcome Professor Bart Leroy of Belgium and Professor Isabel Audo from Sorbonne. Over to you, Bart. Thank you, Jonathan. Friends, the need for genotyping of all patients with inherited retinal disease and the reasons why is a discussion point that that we'd love to um, have as a first in what we're going to say tonight. And and so the first question I would have for you is, do you agree with the adage that all IRD patients deserve uh, to be genotyped? And Graham, why don't you give that a go? Okay, thanks. Um, so, as as with all of these things, Bart, you you know me very well. Um, I look at the words in the question, and so there there are two key words there. One is all patients, and the second is deserve. So, there's genotyping, genetic analysis, molecular analysis is a really powerful tool for providing an accurate diagnosis for patients with with inherited disorders, and in this case for patients with inherited retinal disorders. And the use of that early in the care pathway is incredibly powerful. And I'm sure we'll come back to some of the reasons why we might want to do that. Before we do, just thinking about the all patients deserve it, I do think that there's there's also a need to be balanced and to think that while it's it's something that can be um, offered to all patients, it's not necessarily the case that everybody needs it. There may be patients that don't want it. There may be patients that 
doctors don't feel a need to provide a diagnosis. And so we need to have a balance there, I think, that says that this is a very powerful tool that is relatively new and is something that we're not used to using, but does this patient require it and need it and will, will they benefit from it? So there needs to be a bit of a balance, but on the whole, I think that this is something that should be employed a great deal more um, than it is. So thank you, Graham. That's that's very important that you also highlight the fact that some patients may not want to uh, have genotyping done. Uh, for the reasons why we would be genotyping patients, I'm going to hand over to my co-chair, Isabel. So the question is, why are you going to genotype and when? Do you wait until you have a clear diagnosis or your molecular testing will help us to uh, confirm your diagnosis? What do you tell the patient? Is it useful for a visual prognosis as well? What do you think, Rola? Well, I think um, it depends what the patient wants at the end of the day. So some of my patients, they come with only a single question. Is there a treatment or not? And in that case, you have to really be considerate of putting their you know, hopes down to a realistic level. But then you can say, well, I can help you putting a name to it at least, uh, although I cannot treat it. And some patients become very enthusiastic about the idea and others, they just d don't want to know any more information about their disorder. They know, you know, the progression is almost inevitable and you can't really do much about it anyway. So, and some patients are quite, you know, keen to put a name to it and even try to trace other members of the family who might be affected or at risk. And these are the patients that I put 150% effort with. And not, not, not saying that I'm not gonna be enthusiastic about the other patients, I can help them in, in so many other ways. So for me, putting a name to it and also trying to understand the, the landscape of genetic disorders here in the kingdom, it's a hotbed for recessive disorders, for example. And we do have our own kind of private mutations that unless you really kind of have a cohort of patients who seemingly unrelated, but then they have this similar manifestations, you can't even, you know, upgrade that classification of variant of uncertain significance, for example, to a pathogenic or likely pathogenic. So, as, as Professor Black mentioned, I mean, it's, it's really a complex question and it depends how motivated the patients are and uh, whether also, as you mentioned, uh, it's a child and, and the parents are hoping to have more children, then you can help them really by doing genetic testing in, in, you know, if they are enthusiastic about pre-implantation diagnosis and IVF. You can really serve them in that capacity. So. Yes, I'm all with, with genetic testing, but there are always caveats in, in, you know, in a homogeneous society. It's a gold mine, really, for genetic disorders. There are also caveats that you end up with a lot of variants of uncertain significance and, and you have quite a lot of family members to segregate amongst whilst you don't have enough you know, resources to do that. So on a balance, yes, but with, 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 you know, you have to work within the limitations and also, you know, meeting the expectations of your patients. So Rola, the, the things that you mentioned are very important because obviously, as we've seen over the years, 
technology has been changing from looking at a single gene with targeted testing, one gene, we look at a phenotype, we say, oh, this is probably Stargardt disease, and we go for ABCFO. We still sometimes do this, but more and more this, this is being replaced, obviously, by panel testing or even uh, wider testing. Um, you were touching upon the fact that you may end up having quite a lot of diff different um, variants uh, that uh, obviously the significance is not always very clear of. Is that a reason why patients ought to be referred to super specialist centers and how to go about with results that um, uh, end up giving you like maybe five, six variants of unknown significance and more known significance in the five classic classes that the European College of Medical Genetics has proposed? Well, I, I think, you know, um, I'm a big fan of whole exome sequencing. Clinical exome for me is, is you know, a fantastic idea. It, it also gives me the, the opportunity that sometimes the phenotype can be quite different from anything that I used to see. And sometimes it can be associated with what I think is a syndromic, you know, kind of manifestation. Uh, say, for example, we have quite a few patients, children with labor congenital amaurosis who come with autism spectrum and other neurological disorders. And you don't know really whether it's associated with, with the retinopathy or as a consequence of loss of vision from early on in life, or it's actually an entity in its own. So the caveat of whole exome sequencing is that you end up in a situation with like buy one, get 10 for free. <laughs> And uh, sometimes the kids are also you know, heterozygous carriers for other significant genes, even for, for Batten's disease and things like that. And you have to consider all of this when you counsel the family. So imagine somebody who's not specialized in this field, ending up looking at a, such a report and trying to interpret this and trying to counsel the family. You know, everybody will be you know, at a mess, to put it mildly. Thank you, Roland. And I know of a program um, or the way that, that the UK is structured. Uh, the UK is structured in a very rational uh, way in doing genetics. And I'd love to have Graham's input on what you think is the way forward in dealing with more and more genetic results uh, coming your way. And where is the place of a retinal specialist? Where is the place of a general ophthalmologist and where's the place of a super specialist in ophthalmic genetics what do you what do you think yes i i think that this is a changing field isn't it and that's one of the things that makes it exciting that we've we've seen such a, a change in the the style the nature of genetic testing um, and when we're able to employ it perhaps mainly driven by um, the, the reducing costs, which are likely to continue to reduce over the next few years. I have to say one of the things that worries me about focusing around super specialist um, centers is that actually the super specialists become the bottleneck um, and that there aren't enough super specialists to see all of the patients at the same time as we're saying that we should democratize genetic testing to as many patients as possible that want it. And so there needs to be a balance there, I think. And while genetic testing and the interpretation of variants is very complicated, there are a lot of variants that it's not complicated for. And so if it is possible 
for um, an education program or for clinical networks to embrace, for example, medical retina specialists or pediatric ophthalmologists in smaller centers and draw them in to increase the number of clinicians with experience of testing and thereby increase the number of patients that access the testing, I do think ultimately that will be the better way forward. If, if this is going to rely on the four of us for our four countries, and I exaggerate somewhat, then either if we get COVID or if there are too many patients, we're going to be in a difficult situation. And so I think that there's got to be some push and pull here. You know, there are clinicians out there that are very comfortable with making a diagnosis of Stargardt disease clinically. And there are many patients with Stargardt disease that have two clear variants that confirm that diagnosis. And I don't think that that will need a super specialist center all of the time. And so we need to be somewhat flexible. Um, I don't think that the super specialist can prescribe something that's too exclusive. Interesting. Yeah. So you think this, uh, I guess this creating a sort of network with ophthalmologists that are comfortable with retinal disease, uh, with good contact with super specialists that can maybe remotely advise uh, them and, and then the molecular geneticist. How do you envisage this? Uh, we are all facing this bottleneck of access, patient access to, to diagnostic. So I, I don't have any solutions, but I'm, I'm an optimist here. Um, and I think, first of all, there's no question that there is a need for specialist centers, in particular to see specialist, you know, conditions. It's just I don't know that all of the conditions we see remain difficult to diagnose. So, so there are two things. I think that as, um, as teleophthalmology, as online connections get better, um, the communication between those taking the test and those reporting the test can become more remote. I think we have to understand what patients need, and it may well be that although we're taking the test, the, the result giving, the genetic counselling anyway, may be given by other groups. It's not always given by ophthalmology. And certainly what we've done in our area is to encourage ophthalmologists across a greater region to be involved and to communicate through multidisciplinary team meetings, through online meetings, to increase the number of people that are aware, are comfortable, and are willing to participate in this. Because, of course, if we take pediatric ophthalmology, there may be a, a relatively small number of opportunities to do the genetic testing early on. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the initial premise that, that Bart came was that access, increasing access to genetic testing is important, which I, I fervently believe to be the case. But not all of those patients may have access to the small number of clinicians. And it's, it's obviously a very important point that you've raised now, Graham, and, and I'd love to um, 
maybe go a little bit towards a point of discussion that I think we ought to address, which is the differential access to genetic testing across the globe and, and the ways to potentially improve this. And Rhoda has been doing quite a bit of work in at the King Khaled Eye Specialist Hospital in, in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And obviously she's very solidly trained and does the job herself. But the question is, for example, in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East in general, you know that area much better than I do. But should a person who's not wealthy want genetic testing? Is that patient or person able to get that testing financially, that is? Uh, for example, Rola, and, and could you educate us on, on what the situation in the Middle East is and where the challenges lie and potentially the solutions? Well, it depends where you are in the Middle East, isn't it? So uh, I can speak on, on behalf of, of the situation here, for example. I mean, uh, we've got uh, the, the Novartis Initiative, for example, for genetic testing. And this has helped us um, you know, solving quite a few cases uh, since I have arrived here. Previously, genetic testing was 100% supported by the government. And because of the lack of expertise i've seen patients who do have like you know situation that you end up like if you take good history for example you end up suspecting even a, a uveitic entity causing the pigmentary retinopathy and those patients underwent genetic testing and it was quite frustrating for uh, some of the people in charge of the finances that there are quite a lot of patients who came back with negative test results and when I revised a few of those patients, in the first instance, the phenotype was, wasn't interpreted correctly. And therefore, you know, panel testing or even whole exome sequencing being requested by somebody who didn't phenotype the patient to, um, to a satisfactory degree ended up by a negative result. Meanwhile, you can just write back to the lab and say, I think that this patient has got something else. Could you please look? And more often than not, actually, I get a positive result after that. So the tool, I mean, doctors can be very, very comfortable requesting a test which, can, which is expensive as long as it's available. But the problem is that making the diagnosis in the first instance and then interpreting the results within the context of the clinical phenotype isn't something that everyone is comfortable in doing. So I think back to the question about access, uh, I think we didn't have a problem in, you know, in accessing those tests in the beginning, but there are two hurdles. As I mentioned, number one is, is the negative test results. And the second one was the lack of treatment. So, you know, the, the responsible people, they said like, okay, what's, what's the benefit really? And, and then there was also a, a bottleneck in, in, the, in the sector of um, pre-implantation diagnosis. So quite a few of those patients, when they tried to access the service, they weren't able to reach the right people to, uh, to help them. So it's multifactorial, but I think on, in, you know, on a balance, I think we are in a better situation than most of the Middle Eastern countries. It's probably true, Rola, and, and I'd love to ask my co-chair a question, if I may. The development of what is now known as Luxterna in Philadelphia led me when I also practiced in a children's hospital of Philadelphia and in Ghent, Belgium, which is a very different setup 
not in quality, but in access to what is molecular genetic testing, obviously because of financial reasons. And we all know that the US doesn't have the national uh, health service that uh, systems in Europe, for example, have. And when people at Spark Therapeutics, the spin-off company from, of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, asked me, so how well are people characterized in the European countries? They were surprised to find that we had genotyped the majority of our patients. So that was something that they were surprised by coming from the Americans. And indeed, the difference that I see between the Americas and Europe is that we are far ahead, uh, probably because of the National Health Service or whatever reason uh, that, that I'd love you to contribute on. Um, we are far ahead in genotyping uh, our patients. And so access to genotyping in the US, certainly sometimes people have to fork out fifteen to $25,000 to get their genetic testing done out of pocket. Um, so what are the reasons you think, Isabel, and your experience in one of the leading EU countries, France, where you've got a, a, a beautiful setup uh, healthcare-wise, why are you in France and us in Belgium so way ahead of, and the UK, for example, as well, why are we so ahead of other countries and what to do about that? So I think, you know, and, and I guess it's similar in, in England and, and in Belgium, we had this national plan, you know, to uh, try to resolve these uh, um, unmet needs on rare disease. There was a lot of uh, accent or money that was put in rare disease plan with networks, supporting expert, expert networks, including, you know, specialized clinic, but also uh, um, remote uh, advice and so on. And uh, one critical point um, that you raised, Rola, is also the access to genetic testing with a proper uh, clinical diagnosis. And if I can take one example is that now there is now in France, we have access to whole genome sequencing. There's two national platforms, and I think it's similar in the UK. But to have access to this clinical platform, there's a really strict protocol. And for example, the diagnosis, the clinical diagnosis needs to be clear cut and there's special items that needs to be filled before having access to this. And, and it's expensive, you know, so we are very lucky, but are we going to be able to sustain such molecular testing? And the other point, you know, about is although our European countries can have these great programs, how we can address other, um, you know, countries and Africa, Eastern Europe, Asia, where, uh, you know, these patients need to also to have access to the diagnosis for genetic counseling, but also access to innovative treatment. It's a big question now. Graham, you've been teaching in China a couple of times. You know China a, a little bit, I think, at least much better than, than I do. I do know Singapore a bit, and Singapore people are using grant money to actually genotype uh, people. What is your experience from knowing China, for example, as a as a different country from the UK? So I, I don't know a great deal about the, the Chinese healthcare system, but I do know that it's something that's not provided. Testing isn't provided by a national health system. Um, testing is outsourced to companies. And generally, um, from my understanding, patients have to, to pay for it. If we If we look at 
high throughput genomic testing. This is something that was developed from around about 2010. So it's relatively new. And as I said earlier, the, the cost is dropping. And probably over the next couple of years, as the Illumina IPO drops out, it's quite likely that the cost is going to drop further. And I think that from the cost point of view, that will improve access. Now, very clearly, different countries, different healthcare systems are going to, to embrace that at, at different times. But probably the, the cost barrier is one that is going to at least lower. It's not going to go away. The, the other thing that I do think is important is to, to look at, at prioritization in those circumstances, though. And clearly, all patients could have genetic testing, but not everyone necessarily needs it. And so we can, we can look at those patients who might have unsuspected syndromic forms, those at risk of having kidney disease, for example, with a provisional diagnosis of Labour's congenital amaurosis, and you mentioned Luxterna, those patients with um, LCA and RPE65 mutations. And we can say that we could prioritise our genetic testing to those who are going to benefit from it most. And so everyone might want it, but not everyone will need it, and some will benefit more than others. And in general, if we take um, the younger patients, it's likely that our diagnostic protocol is going to be more um, effective. We've found more of the genes and our pickup rate is higher on the one hand, and the benefit is going to be greater. And so that's, that's selecting down to a smaller number of um, cases. And we can imagine that reducing cost and a prioritization process will help those that will benefit from it to be tested first, perhaps. Although you would, in such a prioritization uh, scheme, you would you would probably still leave quite a bit of people genetically unaccounted for. And so your view of what societal load there is in genetic disease, at least for inherited retinal disease, would not be complete. Is that a reason to to strive for better genotyping and characterization of everyone? Uh, so, so I think it is. Um, I, I think that it would be entirely reasonable to say that it's an aspiration to, to test as many people as possible. But it's also reasonable to be pragmatic along the way and to say that if costs are dropping and therefore the amount of testing is going to go up, while costs haven't dropped, ensuring that we make sure that those that really are going to benefit are done first is reasonable at least. And there may be patients out there with dominant disease, for example, where they know what the condition is, not genetically, but in, in um, manifestation terms from their parents, from their uncles, whatever, who say, well, look, you know, I can see it's a 50-50 chance. I know that. Um, what, what's the benefit? And it's going to be difficult to argue with that. It would be interesting to know what the natural history of a rhodopsin mutation over a peripheral mutation is, but they don't need to know that. And so, so I think we can be pragmatic as well, while 
the the sands are shifting while there's um while there is there's change afoot it's a it's great input uh, graham and thank you for it and the, the point that that i would want to close our discussion with is is the need for super specialist centers we've alluded to it uh, already but i just want to open the discussion with a situation where i saw a patient and we all four are coming from centers where we apply Luxterna. Now, with Luxterna on the market, uh, success has many friends, failure is an orphan. We all know that. And so all of a sudden, everyone thinks that they ought to be applying Luxterna. I can understand the enthusiasm, but I would want to apply a word of caution. I remember seeing a, a young child in Philadelphia who was diagnosed molecularly by a commercial company as having two mutations, biallelic mutations in RP65. I was a bit puzzled because I could not link up the phenotype, which wasn't typical of RP65 disease. And the patient failed to come back and only came back as Luxterna was on the market and say, stating, I have RP65 related IRD, I want treatment now. So I looked at her again and again, I could not marry what I was seeing phenotypically in the eye with the genotype of RP65. So I wasn't sure enough. And so I asked the gene, uh, the genotyping company to look at the results back again. So they downgraded one of the variants from a mutation to um, a, a variant of unknown significance. And the clue was that actually there was a clear autofluorescence on blue light autofluorescence, uh, which we all know is has a typical uh, image in RP65 related disease. And that woke me up, it scared me a bit because I thought, well, hang on, in the US, there's about 10 centers applying uh, Luxterna. There's about 43 centers in the EU. And then you think, well, hang on. I mean, if I struggled and I recognized this as a super specialist, I'm worried that we would come across a situation where we would be treating people who don't really have disease. And I'd love to have your input on that and, and, and see where you would have a word of caution that we first would want to learn how to take our first step, steps in gene therapy rather than kicking off running from the beginning. And, and maybe, Rola, what is your take on, on such a story? Well, uh, I, I share your um, anxiety about, you know, people who are not subspecialized in the field who may end up taking such a, you know, a decision and, and exposing a patient to a relatively major procedure that they might not even benefit from. Uh, I mean, at the worst case scenario, they might even have complications because of the surgery itself. So I, I think for such decisions, um, I think an IRD specialist, when it comes to pre-implantation diagnosis or gene therapy, I think the decision has to be actually taken by an IRD specialist. So whenever there is a, a medical decision to be taken, I think an IRD specialist should be, should be consulted. And I think this is a priority. Yeah, it's a, a really, really good point. And, uh, you know, uh, Bart, we also need to prepare for future treatments. And how can we, um, you know, liaise between the quality of the molecular diagnosis that will be generated by such lab 
clinician that will make sense between the genotype and the phenotype? And how can we prepare for this uh, future treatment? And again, we go back to, is, is it really um, for really expert centers only, or should there be some, you know, scientific committees that will also give guidelines like the um, uh, American College of Human Genetics regarding, you know, how you're going to address that phenotype is really coherent with the genotype and then the patient can be treated. I, I'm, I'm with you completely and I'd love to have the input of our, our guest uh, Graham uh, on this because I know he's quite knowledgeable and, and has an open view of where the role of all the levels of ophthalmology would be. Um, so Graham, I'd, I'd invite you to give your thoughts and, and end with that actually. Yes, I, I, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, and, you know, again, I come back to that word democratization, really, um, that, that, that what we want to, to see is, is increasing access. We've talked about genetic testing, but, you know, uh, our aspirations are that it's more than just RPE65 that's treatable, as Isabel says. And we know that there's progress with choroideremia, with X-linked RP, but you know, at some point it is possible that Stargardt's disease may become amenable to a gene-based therapy. And there are a lot of patients with Stargardt's disease and ABCA4 retinopathy. And it will be impossible to have a tiny group of centres treating those patients. And so I think we need a, a period of growth, but we want, we, we want to grow in a safe manner where the specialist centers impart knowledge and support the growth of other centers. But I think ultimately that's where we're, we're headed. But I think, you know, in a way it's, a, it's, it's rather good that we've, we've got a condition that's relatively rare in RPE 65 retinopathy, that we can do the learning in a smaller number of centers as we move out. It's absolutely true, and, and thank you for that. I think we are looking at a situation where if Stargard becomes treatable, then indeed we will not be able to do this as the super specialist centers, and we will obviously be those people probably who will help parents who come in with kids who suffer from Stargard disease and want to know everything about the availability of modern innovative treatments. And so as we can provide that sort of information, we will still need to rely on other centers that are not as super specialized as ours, but are still able to get the input that we can give them and are able to give the treatment to, um, to more patients because we will most probably be inundated otherwise with the work. And let's hope that at one stage we will be inundated because that may mean or would certainly mean actually that there are enough treatments for our patients available. So um, I'd love to uh, just um, end with a round of final thoughts. Isabel, would you have any thoughts that you think we did not address in this first podcast for IRDs um, or on the IRDs? Well, actually, no, I, I was just dreaming about the future. And thinking, you know, like mentioning the ACMG classification, maybe at some point 
maybe with artificial intelligence, we may have some specific algorithm for the proper diagnosis, the correlation with the genotyping, and then patients may be treated when we have more treatment to propose. Yeah. Rola, any closing thoughts? Well, I just want to draw on the experience in the kingdom here of premarital testing for uh, thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. And this has, over time, I mean, people were just counseled and told about their risks and, and the risks to their children. And then they were left to decide whether they want to have children or carry on with the marriage and so on and so forth. And in such a homogeneous society, I think with the cost of genetic testing dropping down and better like phenotyping and better identification of founder mutations in certain populations like this one, uh, I think I look forward to actually premarital testing for IRDs because I think because of consanguinity, the, the rate is, is a, a bit higher than what you would expect in, in a heterogeneous society otherwise. So... I'm always with prevention rather than actually diagnosing and getting stuck with a, a disorder that you can't really treat. Very valuable point. And uh, Graham, you as our second guest, Isabel and mine, my second guest, what, what do you think uh, you should give to our audience as a closing thought? So we've all worked with inherited retinal disorders for a number of years. And I, I think for myself, this is actually an exciting time to be working in this field. It's, a, it's an area that was a bit of a Cinderella for a long time, but actually our ability to provide accurate diagnoses, to predict those that are gonna get uh, syndromic complications, to provide treatments is coming. And I think this is something which is going to be available as just another diagnostic modality alongside electrodiagnostics, alongside clinical examination. Um, and I think it's something that's going to become increasingly available. And for myself, I find that tremendously exciting. I think that this is, this is progress in front of our eyes. It is certainly, and, and let's say it's never been a better time to be in ophthalmic genetics. And with that final thought, I'd, I'd like to very much thank all of you to, for participating in this um, uh, very interesting podcast on IRDs. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. Well, I know I say that every episode, but that was a really fascinating uh, discussion. And that chat about genetic testing really resonated with me coming from Ireland, where we have a high rate of some other inherited diseases, not necessarily to do with the eye, but uh, cystic fibrosis, for example. Many of those same issues about getting tested and access and that arise in the same way. Um, thank you so much to our panel, uh, Dr. Rola Ba'abad from King Khaled Eye Specialist Hospital in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and Professor Graham Black, Manchester Royal Eye Hospital in the United Kingdom. Uh, thanks also to our chairs, Professor Bartlerois and uh, Professor Isabel Audo. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with another episode on the 1st of March. God, this year is flying, isn't it? Uh, before that, though, on the 24th of February, Rainier Schlingemann and Camille Bone will be hosting the next Uretina Case Club from Amsterdam UMC. These are great events where cases are presented and discussed by key opinion leaders. So there's a lot to learn and it's clearly really practical because the discussions are based on, on real events. So uh, the Uretinet Case Club from Amsterdam UMC will be Thursday, 24th of February at 8pm CET. Hope to see you then. 
And just a reminder, if you would like us to cover any particular area of retina or you have a comment, a query, or, or indeed a criticism, uh, please do email us, podcast at uretina.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking to Retina. We'll see you next time.